I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me their favorite idea. The one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good. And we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell. The dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear. The one that describes purgatory where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet, and about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book, Blink. I can't wait to share it all with you. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I am... The Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. You've been looking for me, yeah? Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. These are the tales that shaped the nation. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. The devastation those first bombs caused. Then I told him they were drinking cyanide. (laughs) Featuring the voices of Wes Study. At least 4,000 people died on the trail. Martin Starr. President Nixon called me the most dangerous man in America. Scott Hayes. Next thing I know, I'm standing over the bodies of Baker Morton. My pistol smoking in my hand. And Tristan McWilds. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Starring Dan Fogler as the ferryman. This is The Passage. Listen to The Passage now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. And history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. What happened when a zealous scientist tried to inject snow into a hurricane? How did the world's greatest illusionist trick his audience after he had died? Why did the inventor of Mother's Day try to take it all back? And how did we get the story of the Segway boss's untimely death on a Segway so very wrong? 
I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Some stories will delight you, others may scare you, but they'll all make you wiser. Listen to Cautionary Tales on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. Hello there. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that host of yours, Liv. And well, God, sometimes I bite off more than I can chew, hey? It's happening more and more the deeper I get into the sources, and the more I exhaust the more typical straightforward stories from myth and myth-adjacent stories. And I mean, I'm glad I'm going this deep. Glad I'm covering texts like this one. But sometimes they're difficult, you know? Like the symposium. So I set out to cover this text because it's really important in the grand scheme of ancient Greece. I don't normally care about the philosophers, and that's not changing, but it has all these important historical and mythological implications. And it's been referenced a few times in conversation episodes that I've recorded lately. And so I really wanted to dive deeper because, gods, I just did the most surface level reading of it, of just that soulmates bit that one time. It's like 10 minutes long. Wild. So... It felt right to go into more detail this time. But, of course, I forgot how tricky that could be. Um, so today, I'm going to try to synthesize it a bit more clearly, hopefully stay out of the weeds a bit more than the part one episode, and just stick to the bits of the stories that I think are most relevant to my purpose. I want to talk about love in ancient Greece. I mean, it really only revolves around men in this, but still... I, just, I want to talk about the, the, the silly but interesting idea of soulmates that pre- that's presented, other halves, with an emphasis on, again, how they saw love between men. Because it, it's a really interesting topic that truly has so much to look at. It's, it, it's fascinating. We'll get into it. I talked a lot about, though, the Erastes and Romanos relationships last week. I won't do it again. We're going to try not to dwell on the age disparities because, like I said then... While we all see it as seriously troubling now, it, it was an accepted practice back then, and there's good evidence that the men and young men in most of these relationships really did benefit, love each other, just generally it was a good thing. Because life was different, morality was different, literally everything was different. It is also, particularly when we're not talking about mythology, it's one of the few means through which we can look at romantic and sexual relationships between men in ancient Greece. I know there's still a lot of debate about the topic, particularly within the study of it, which I won't I won't weigh in on in favor of just emphasizing that the discussions in this dialogue at their core are in favor of, of two men being romantically and sexually in love. And as will come up in a future conversation, it can be understood in some myths and sources that the reason so many romantic relationships of myth actually end in tragedy could be that they were not relationships that aligned with the Erastes Aromanos tradition and therefore were seen as kind of outside of the norm. That is all to say, those relationships will come up again in this episode because they were just an enormous part of the lives of the men who are being fictionalized in this dialogue and in Plato's world itself. 
where we last left this absolutely bananas dinner and drinking party, (laughs) a few of the men gathered had already spoken about love, how they viewed the concept and the god and the priorities therein. The height was, of course, the discussion of Achilles and Patroclus, where everyone at the party was in agreement that the two mythological characters were very much in love with each other romantically. The only question to be debated was who was the Erastes and who was the Aromanos, the penetrator and the penetrated. That, though, was up for furious debate, and apparently Aeschylus was very wrong in his depiction. That is, in a very tragically lost play called the Myrmidons. And then, well, then the fictional version of Aristophanes, the comedic playwright, took up the mantle and made it all seriously fucking weird. I also read something right after I'd finished recording that last episode, so I'll note it here, but apparently there are theories that the reason Aristophanes' speech is so very ridiculous, and we haven't even gotten into the most absurd of it, is actually because Plato saw Aristophanes' version of Socrates in his play The Clouds as having worked against the philosopher in the court case against him, and so he chose to make Aristophanes sound like monstrously ridiculous in this dialogue. And I mean, given how weird this is about to get, like, I can see it. This is episode 215, Socrates and Alcibiades, The Lovers You Never Knew You Needed, Plato's Symposium, Part 2. Aristophanes began last week by explaining that in the early days of humanity, humans looked very different from now. They were doubled, basically, but also seemingly rounder. Honestly, I can't help but picture, like, ball-shaped humans. In any case, they had two of everything, and there were three types, three genders, male, female, and a combination of the two. But these oddly shaped humans weren't docile, and instead they threatened the gods. Threatening Olympus, cartwheeling around. Even Zeus knew he had to do something about it. But he didn't want to wipe humans off the map. The gods needed them to worship and to sacrifice and pour libations to the gods. All the things humans do for the deities. Instead, he determined to weaken them and their threat by splitting them in half. And as a bonus, it will also mean double the humans, and thus double the worship of the gods. And so Zeus cut all the humans of Earth in two. Cut them as one would slice an apple or a hard-boiled egg. (laughs) With the help of Apollo, the newly split humans were fused together to form what we now understand to be humanity with all their extra flesh and skin pulled together and tied up at the belly button. Very normal stuff. Definitely not weird and wacky as all hell. He also smoothed wrinkles, shaped chests, but left that navel so that humans would always have a memory of what they once were. But, Aristophanes continues, quote, Since their original nature had been cut in two, Each one longed for its own other half and stayed with it, 
They threw their arms round each other, weaving themselves together, wanting to form a single living thing. He explains that they often died from hunger and lack of movement because once they found their other halves, they wanted to do nothing else but hold on to them. Unless you think we're getting to the cute bit where we just talk about soulmates. We now learn that up until this point, everyone was kind of dying off because they were so preoccupied with their other gen- their other halves or and because their genitals hadn't been rearranged along with the rest of them. They'd been on their backs and they hadn't been able to reproduce with each other, but with the earth itself. They were fucking the earth, just like Aristophanes says, cicadas. <laughs> Realizing uh, this was what his new humanity was missing, <laughs> Zeus finally rearranged them so that their genders were on the front. Lucky them! Now, Aristophanes tells the others, when a man met a woman, they were able to reproduce. And he adds very specifically, quote, if two males came together, they would at least have the satisfaction of sexual intercourse and then relax, turn to their work, and think about the other things in their life. This, we are told, is how humanity came to desire one another. Romantic and sexual desire pulls together two people in the hopes that they are the other halves of the original humans, makes them return to their true nature, their true selves. It tries to form one human from two to seal the wounds that were left when the gods split them in two. Because of this, every human is always searching for this other half of themselves, this soulmate. He explains that men who were split from the all-male gender search for their other halves in men. Women are the same when split from the female. And those who were split from the human with the combined gender search for their other half in the opposite gender. But, well, again, this dialogue is very gay. And thus we get the added detail that those men who were attracted to women (laughs) and those women who were attracted to men, they're the ones most likely to be adulterers. That's right. When the men searching for their other half and another man are young, Aristophanes says, they are the best of humanity because those who sleep with other men are the bravest. He explains that some people say these men are shameless, but that's not true. Quote, it's not out of shamelessness that they do this, but because they are bold, brave and masculine and welcome the same qualities in others. He goes so far as to explain that these great men who are only attracted to other men would happily live that way forever, spending their lives together in real satisfaction. And it's only that necessity often dictates that they marry women due to their general societal convention and the need to procreate. Aristophanes details that those people who find their true other halves, which is of course a very rare thing, Most spend their time with others of the gender of their true half, but not necessarily that exact person, unless they're just that lucky. But when they are that lucky, they spend their entire lives together and wish, though they don't even entirely understand why themselves, that they could be one person with their other half, fused together for eternity, living and dying together. That's why, he says, quote, Love is the name for the desire and pursuit of wholeness. 
This and the threat that if humans aren't good enough to the gods, they could be further split from themselves is why humans worship the gods as they do and why love, the god and the concept is the leader of everyone. Quote, if we are friends of the god and have him on our side, we shall do what few people now do, find and become close to the loved ones that are really our own. Aristophanes clarifies, too, that that he doesn't want the men listening to think he's only trying for comedy or, or that he's speaking only to Pausanias and Agathon, who, where do you understand, have been in committed and lasting relationships either with each other or just other men. I, I'm unclear. He emphasizes that they are cut from the all-male original form, finding love and attraction in other men. But regardless of this, he wants to make sure it's clear he's referring to everyone regardless of their gender or the gender they're attracted to, and that, quote, our human race can only achieve happiness if love reaches its conclusion and each of us finds his loved one and restores his original nature. With his speech over, Aristophanes once again reminds Eryximachus, as the doctor in the room, that he isn't trying for comedy, even if it sounds like he is. He's quite serious. What that means for Aristophanes as a real person and Plato and Plato's thoughts on Aristophanes is a bit less certain. Regardless, the dialogue and we are moving on to the last two official speeches. Agathon is up first, and then Socrates himself. Agathon gets a little nervous. Socrates implies that he's going to have an amazing speech and that the philosopher isn't thrilled about having to follow it up. They speak of Agathon as a tragedian, as this dialogue takes place shortly after he's won the Dionysia, and Socrates emphasizes the, the confidence that he had on the stage, and, and thus he shouldn't feel any differently now. Finally, Agathon is convinced to begin. He, he wants to speak of love as the god, as the concept itself, noting that the others have focused their speeches on the things humans get from love, rather than on love himself. That's where Agathon comes in. He also says that, contrary to what's already been said in favor of the god, he doesn't believe that Eros, love, is the oldest of the gods. Instead, that he's the youngest. That he is the youngest and that he runs from old age, flees from it, avoids aging at all, and is the most youthful and beautiful of all the gods. That is Agathon's argument. He knows this because, he says, all of the things the gods did in those earliest days of the world, as, as people like Hesiod recorded, they wouldn't have been possible. They wouldn't have happened if Eros had been there. Quote, the gods would not have castrated or imprisoned each other or done those many acts of violence if love had been among them. There would have been friendship and peace between them, as there is now and has been since love began to rule among the gods. Agathon says that love lives amongst the most sensitive of humans because he is himself a sensitive god, that he finds the softest minds and characters and avoids those who are hard and tough. 
He speaks of the shape of Eros, that he himself is soft and pliable. That's how he manages to get so deep into the minds and characters of humans. That he is soft and beautiful and spends his time amongst the flowers. That he avoids things and people who aren't the same, who've, who've lost their bloom. Is that implying that old or less than beautiful people won't find love? Let's assume not. With discussion of Eros's appearance and beauty out of the way, he's moving on to discuss the god's virtue. And gods, is he virtuous? Agathon says that love never does anything that could be seen as an injustice and that no injustices are committed on him. He says that love is never forced and thus nothing is forced on him. Quote, when love does anything, he doesn't use force, since everyone consents to all love's orders, and whatever is agreed by mutual consent, that is what laws, the sovereignty of the city, define as just. Love is courageous, too, Agathon explains. Not even Ares could stand up to love. Even he bowed to Aphrodite and what she represents— and since Ares is the bravest of all others, love must be the bravest of everyone. Of course, love is also wise. And yes, now it sounds a bit like that bit of the Bible that they read at weddings. I'm assuming it's the Bible. Love is patient, you know, whatever. <laughs> you get it. Anyway, Egathon says that love is wise and he's going to explain why. Love is such a great poet that when someone is touched by love, even if he's never once been inspired by the muses in the past, he will himself become one of the greatest poets of all time. He links love, Eros, to, to many of the most important of gods, connecting the roles of Apollo, Hephaestus, Athena, and even Zeus to Eros. Because everything they are in charge of ultimately is inspired by love and his wisdom. Love led Apollo to discover archery and music and so much more. He inspired Hephaestus to discover metalwork. The list goes on, and it always comes back to love. Agathon continues to espouse the wonders that he sees as love, listing everything he can imagine and finishing with, quote, For the whole company of gods and humans, most beautiful and best of leaders, every man should follow him, singing beautiful hymns of praise, sharing the song he sings to charm the mind of every god and human. Agathon's speech is met with applause and cheers. He's impressed the group, though no one is surprised. He's the tragedian among them. After all, the, the poet. And they're, they're celebrating his win at the Dionysia in the first place. He was always going to have a great speech. Socrates then turns to Eryximachus and asks whether his earlier nerves at having to follow Agathon were unfounded after all. But no... But still, he, he's told that while Agathon certainly spoke just as well as Socrates imagined he would, he certainly, he, Socrates, certainly won't be lost for words. He, he's Socrates, after all. And so it's time for the philosopher to speak. In true Socrates fashion, and yes, most of my knowledge of Socrates is utter bullshit and comes entirely from Assassin's Creed Odyssey, I am, after all, an expert in mythology, not philosophy. Regardless, in what I will trust is true Socrates fashion, he starts his speech by explaining that he thought he understood the parameters of what they were doing in speaking of love, but in fact, it turns out he was wrong after all. 
He sees now, having listened to everyone else present their thoughts, that it isn't about telling the truth of the topic, finding the best features and presenting them in a way that makes love look the best and truthful, but instead, he's learned he should, quote, claim that your subject has the great and finest qualities, whether it really does or not, and if what you say isn't true, it doesn't matter very much. Shots fired, Socrates. He goes further, suggesting that they all basically just said what they thought they should, keeping love happy. But he's not about to follow their lead. <clears throat> Instead, he says, he's going to tell the truth. He asks, though, whether Phaedrus, who's the one who started the whole call for speeches, even wants to hear what he has to say, now that he's announced that his only intention is to tell the truth, in whatever words come to him. But yes, they want to hear it. And so he starts by asking whether it's okay if he begins asking Agathon questions. It is. Socrates launches into a debate with Agathon, pushing him on what he's included in his own speech, asking him questions and follow-ups based on Agathon's responses. This bit of the symposium is the most Socrates-like bit, and thus the most reminiscent of most of Plato's dialogues, because Socrates so often features to nudge other speakers, to question them and push back, letting Plato's own, own philosophy guide the conversations through Socrates' questioning. Essentially, he questions the nature of love as Agathon described it, requiring beauty and desire, and eventually getting Agathon to agree that in order to desire something, one mustn't have it to begin with, and thus, if someone is desiring beauty, they must be ugly. And then, because if this is true, the same applies to goodness, and so ultimately this means that love, both the god and the concept, is neither beautiful nor good. There's so much more to it, but frankly, trying to turn this very Socratic debate into a narrative that I, and thus you all, can understand is not my strong suit. I'm doing my best. And I know sometimes that's frustrating. I've had people question lately why I do episodes on things like this when it is not my specialty, and because I don't understand the philosophers particularly well, or Plato's writing. And honestly, I mean, like, I do it because I think much of the symposium is something I can speak to and, and share with you all. And it's important. And sometimes my show is your access point to everything. And even if that means that there are bits like these where I just tell you what I can and suggest you read it on your own if you're interested, I don't really see any less value in these episodes. But I will just say reading this that yes, it seems like Assassin's Creed Odyssey does an amazing job of presenting at least the platonic idea of Socrates because few, he's a bit insufferable. Back to him having proven Agathon wrong in his own speech, Socrates explains that now he's going to tell them all about a conversation he once had with a woman named Diotima, who was herself so impressive that she once kept Athens from plague for ten years, having told them how to sacrifice in order to achieve this. So, you know, she's a fancy lady. He also explains that this conversation he had with her resulted much the same as the one he just had with Agathon, except that it was Diotima who played the role of Socrates, questioning his own ideal of the god of love and beauty and goodness until she proved much the same thing that Socrates just proved to Agathon. She takes it further, though, proving through similar arguments that in fact love isn't a god at all, but a daemon, a kind of spirit, something in between a human and a god, whose function is to, quote, interpret and carry messages from humans to gods and from gods to humans. 
They convey prayers and sacrifice from humans and commands and gifts in return for sacrifices from gods. These spirits and love as one of them, she told Socrates, is the intermediary. They fill the gaps between the humans and gods and allow the universe to then function as a whole. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me their favorite idea. The one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good, and we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell, the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear, the one that describes purgatory, where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet. And about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book, Blink. I can't wait to share it all with you. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. You've been looking for me, yeah? Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. These are the tales that shaped the nation. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. The devastation those first bombs caused. Then I told him they were drinking cyanide. (laughs) Featuring the voices of Wes Study. At least 4,000 people died on the trail. Martin Starr. President Nixon called me the most dangerous man in America. Scott Hayes. Next thing I know, I'm standing over the bodies of Baker Morton. My pistol smoking in my hand. And Tristan McWilds. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Starring Dan Fogler as the ferryman. This is The Passage. Listen to The Passage now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes. 
but other people's errors can be instructive too. And history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. What happened when a zealous scientist tried to inject snow into a hurricane? How did the world's greatest illusionist trick his audience after he had died? Why did the inventor of Mother's Day try to take it all back? And how did we get the story of the Segway boss's untimely death on a Segway so very wrong? I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Some stories will delight you, others may scare you, but they'll all make you wiser. Listen to Cautionary Tales on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Deotima presents a whole new idea of love, obviously, through this idea of a, a spirit rather than a god. She also presents a new birth story, one that takes place at a celebration of Aphrodite's birth, but where Eros is not her child nor a primordial being at all. Instead, he's the child of resource and poverty, and became an attendant of Aphrodite purely because he was conceived and born at a party for her. But this version of love is, is poor and ugly and has nowhere to live. That is the true nature of this form of love, and in mind he is somewhere between wisdom and ignorance, but, but constantly seeking more. Basically, he's a philosopher, seeking further knowledge and understanding. Through this recounted conversation between Diotima and Socrates, we learn the idea of this very different form of love, and the idea that, that beauty isn't the end goal, as it seemed from the earlier speeches, but instead it's a means of reaching the end goal. She shifts the idea of beauty into that of good, being that humans seek good things rather than beautiful things, with the result of such ownership being a general happiness, contentedness in humans. She then connects all of this to the idea of, of reproduction, but as I understand it, which, frankly, it's very difficult to understand because my brain just does not work well with this kind of philosophy. Re reproduction here is referring to kind of everything, or, or rather, everything that can be like created, produced. From, from the basic idea of human reproduction, children, to, to art and wisdom and, and knowledge generally. Virtue. Anything that can be created by mind or body. She goes on to return to the characters that we've heard of before, people like Alcestis, who, who died for Admetus, and Achilles, who died because Patroclus had died. And Diotima asks Socrates if, if these two would still have given their lives for their significant others if they'd known that they wouldn't get anything out of it, that, that they wouldn't be remembered for it or, or seen as brave and virtuous. Whatever it might have been that they got for their actions, if those things had been off the table would either have still sacrificed themselves. No, she says, it's immortality that they were actually seeking. This then gets connected more specifically to those that are called um, pregnant in mind, their relationships with others being unrelated to sex, and instead inspiration, their children being their work. She even notes poets like Hesiod and Homer, who, who people are so jealous of because of the types of children they produced, their children being their art, their poems, which are immortal. 
her argument is is about beauty and love, but also an attempt to separate those things from romance and sex, seeking both in the mind rather than the body. She speaks of sexual love, of men and their boyfriends, of, of everything that's already been discussed in the rest of the symposium, but instead emphasizes the importance of, of beauty and love in the mind and what that can produce rather than the physical. And gods, I'm hoping I've correctly explained what is happening in this section because it turns out, again, my brain does not meld well with the way Plato forms his arguments. And in, I'm instead, um, I'm used to reading his storytelling bits rather than things like this. I have done my best. <laughs> Socrates finishes his story of Diotima and his speech by explaining that the men assembled there listening could take it as a speech in favor of love, like the rest of them, or they could take it as a speech of whatever else. He, he doesn't much care. <laughs> Just that he was able to make his points. And then Aristophanes tries to speak about something. He, he wants to argue a point, maybe, or defend himself since his speech came up amongst Socrates's, but... They're all interrupted by a very drunk Alcibiades. There's a loud, almost frantic, but certainly excessive knocking at the door that interrupts the men as they attempted to continue to speak of love, of, of their own speeches. Agathon calls to one of his enslaved people to, to go to the door and, and see who it is. And moments later, it is this very drunk and rowdy Alcibiades who's brought in to the group. He hadn't been there before, but is crashing the party now. He's not alone, but he has like a little group of partiers with him. And on his arm, he's got a flute girl. Or rather, she's, she's kind of holding him up as he demands to see Agathon. He appears and, and he's wearing a garland of ivy and violets. He, he's got ribbons all over his head. He's truly decked out. And he says, quote, Good evening, gentlemen. Will you let someone who's drunk, very drunk, join your symposium? Or should we just put a garland on Agathon, which is why we've come, and, and go away? He's arrived uh, intending to celebrate Agathon, bringing him garlands and ribbons in honor of his win at the Dionysia. And he announces that this means that Agathon is officially the wisest and most beautiful. They all welcome Alcibiades, happy to have the oh-so-drunk-and-ridiculous man join their party. It isn't as though they haven't been drinking the entire time, too. Alcibiades comes in, making himself comfortable, but the, the ribbons he's had on his head, they've covered his vision a bit. And so when he sits down, he gets all comfy without, without actually noticing that, that though Agathon is on one side of him, it's actually Socrates who's there on the other side. And when he finally sees Socrates, he's startled, suggesting that the philosopher's been there lying in wait. He adds, quote, why did you choose this couch? I see you didn't pick Aristophanes or anyone else who's prepared to make a fool of himself, but you made sure you'd be lying beside the most attractive man in the room. He's jealous, it seems. And Socrates is sitting next to the hottie that is Agathon. To which Socrates replies, asking for Agathon's help, saying that Alcibiades is such a nuisance, and that specifically, it's actually his own love for Alcibiades that's caused it, that causes him such grief 
that it has ever since he started loving Alcibiades. He says, quote, I haven't been able to look or talk to a single attractive man without his getting so jealous and resentful that he goes crazy and shouts at me and almost beats me up. God, this is getting fun, isn't it? These two. Whew. Now, we don't know for sure, but Plato certainly seems to suggest that these two are lovers, or were at some point. Both were married, but it's a great example of how these things were. And and by lovers, we do mean Erastes or Romanos, whatever that means. Everything that's been talked about in the symposium itself, you know. Socrates was Alcibiades' teacher, you see, his elder, so they had a relationship. And once these two men get past their little little drama, Alcibiades announces that it's quite obvious that the rest of them are not nearly drunk enough, and he elects himself to be their master of ceremonies, or rather just the one to push them all to drink a lot more. He calls for more wine to be brought in, and he nudges them all to drink up, though he notes that it won't work for Socrates. He can drink so much without ever seeming drunk. Seems, seems very Socrates-like, if you ask me. Eryximachus eventually points out, like, Alcibiades, are, are you not going to contribute at all other than your drunkenness? So explains what they've been doing that night, and he asks Alcibiades for, for his own take on love. But Alcibiades doesn't really think this is fair, having someone as drunk as he is compete with the others. And anyway, he says, everything Socrates just said about me was bullshit, and it's the other way around. It's, it's Alcibiades who can't speak to other men without Socrates getting jealous. And gods, I love these two together. They are ridiculous. They begin arguing about it with Alcibiades saying things like, quote, By Poseidon, don't contradict me on this point. <laughs> and so at this, Eryximachus has the idea that Alcibiades shouldn't give a speech on love like the rest of them, but instead a speech on Socrates. And he will. Oh, he will. He begins by comparing Socrates to statues of Silenus, which were ugly and hollow and had little statues of other gods inside. But then he compares them to satyrs, which were known for their sexual appetite and often shown with enormous erections. So, you know, take what you want from that. He speaks about Socrates and how he affects him, how listening to him speak has a kind of frenzied effect on him, how it consumes him and keeps him from thinking of anything else beyond questioning whether his life is even worth anything at all. He explains that it's only in Socrates' presence that he is ever capable of feeling shame, that he, he can't argue anything with him, that he'll always just do whatever Socrates asks of him. He talks about how he sometimes wishes Socrates was gone from the world, but then in the same moment he knows he wouldn't be able to deal with the loss of him. He talks about Socrates being drawn to young, beautiful men and being unable to tear himself away from them. He talks of Socrates messing with people, playing with them. Once again, connecting him to the god Silenus, the, the statues full of little gold statues. How he once saw those, those little gold things within Socrates and thought he'd never seen anything so beautiful. He then goes on to explain in great detail how often he thought that his relationship with Socrates would, would turn sexual, how much he wanted it, how, how often he wanted it to happen. He, he thought it would, that they would, that they would certainly get sexy. He, he wanted it so bad and every time, nothing. Finally, he says he had to take things into his own hands, though it should have been the other way around. He had to decide 
to play the role of the Orastes, as if it were Socrates, who was the Eromanus, the, the younger one. So he invited Socrates to dinner. And after dinner, Socrates settled in to stay the night. But, but when they got to talking, Alcibiades came to the conclusion that Socrates just made him feel like he just wanted to be a better person and that he was the, Socrates was the best person to help him get there. Socrates, though, among other things, doesn't agree with that point, and he doesn't see how he could help Alcibiades. But Alcibiades essentially says that regardless, he's going to continue as he's said. He's, he, he's going to let Socrates determine what's best for him, let him guide him to be a better man. And then that night, they just cuddled up and they went to sleep next to each other. But there were still no sexy times. Quote, Then I threw my arms around this really godlike and amazing man and lay there with him all night long. And again, I say I love them. Alcibiades, though, he says that when he woke up, he was embarrassed and he felt that his really astounding, his famous even good looks, they'd failed him. They hadn't moved Socrates to, to make their relationship sexual. He moves on, though as best he can, as he talks about their their long-lasting relationship. And he goes on to describe when they served in the same battle in a war and how amazing and, and valorous Socrates was then. He, he sings Socrates' praises before returning to the, the lover of it all and, and noting that this is something Socrates has done before to others, essentially taking on an, an Aramino's relationship, but never letting it turn to sex. Alcibiades is particularly frustrated by this, but it, it seems just the nature of Socrates. And this is the case for these Erastes Aramanos. They weren't always sexual, and certainly theirs is a good example of the Aramanos very much wishing the Erastes would turn it sexual. This, it seems, is intentionally, it's pulling back to, to Socrates' speech earlier, when he also spoke about love and relationships, but friendships without sexual aspects. Now, I won't try to explain the full details here, but essentially this moment in the symposium is getting to the idea of platonic love as we think of it, much to Alcibiades' dismay. And with Alcibiades finishing his speech, they they all start to sort of bug him, nudge him about it. Agathon even decides he's going to taunt him by lying down on the other side of Socrates, since Alcibiades had so specifically lain between them to keep the man away from Socrates. And once again, poor Alcibiades has to say, quote, Oh, Zeus, what I suffer from this person. But he does. In the end, he lets Agathon lie between them instead, the best of both worlds. They all spent the night there, in Agathon's home after their drunken night of revelry and wild speeches. And in the morning, you know, some of them had left and, and others got stuck debating with Socrates all over again. Uh, nerds. Thank you so much for listening. That was so much wilder than I expected. Honestly, I, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into when covering this dialogue. After last week's episode, I also got a bit worried that I was going to fuck it up. But I'm pretty happy with this. 
because gods is alcibiades fun and and all other discussions are fascinating for so many different reasons the biggest of all being like what is plato actually saying a question i will not remotely try to answer but you all can have a think about it and read the symposium for yourselves if you so desire in the meantime this was very fun and gods is it all about how awesome it is to be a man in love with another man that's really what it seems to come down to the whole thing i don't have a five-star review to read today i've had to pull uh too many because of how many episodes i've had to prepare in advance of my trip to greece and while i've only uh, gotten a couple of meh not five-star reviews in the past day or two so here we are we're going without this episode is long enough anyway and it's so long and my brain is so mush that I typed love instead of long because of how many times I typed the word love today. But thank you all for listening. And hey, maybe leave me a five-star review if you'd like. Thank you. <laughs> Let's Talk With Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes of my Olympians. She is the best. She pulled a bunch of articles for this. A lot of which I didn't have time to read fully, but I love her for it anyway. <laughs> Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron. We'll get access to bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv and gods I love this shit, even if I am very happy to mostly avoid Plato entirely. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me their favorite idea. The one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good, and we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell, the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear. The one that describes purgatory, where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet. And about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book, Blink. I can't wait to share it all with you. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I am the ferryman. 
In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. You've been looking for me, yeah? Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. These are the tales that shaped the nation. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. Then I told them they were drinking cyanide. <laughs> Featuring the voices of Wes Study. At least 4,000 people died on the trail. Martin Starr. President Nixon called me the most dangerous man in America. Scott Hayes. Next thing I know, I'm standing over the bodies of Baker Morton. My pistol smoking in my hand. And Tristan McWilds. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Starring Dan Fogler as the ferryman. This is The Passage. Listen to The Passage now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. And history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. What happened when a zealous scientist tried to inject snow into a hurricane? How did the world's greatest illusionist trick his audience after he had died? Why did the inventor of Mother's Day try to take it all back? And how did we get the story of the Segway boss's untimely death on a Segway so very wrong? I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Some stories will delight you, others may scare you, but they'll all make you wiser. Listen to Cautionary Tales on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.